Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob Gann, and I've got The Simplicity Cycle with Dan Ward. And the secondary statement is, a field guide to making things better without making them worse. And really, it is a field guide. They've, they've made it a slightly smaller format book that feels and looks like a field guide. Uh, it's beautifully done, nice matte cover. Uh, and I love that you've called it a field guide. So before we really jump into the book a little bit, Dan, why a field guide? Uh, well, uh, thanks again for having me on the show. It's, it's great to be here. I'm excited to have a chance to, to chat with you. Um, why a field guide? You know, we went back and forth with a number of different subtitles for this book, and I, I really felt that what we had crafted, what we had put together was a practical book uh, about simplicity and complexity and, and how do we make good decisions about simplicity and complexity uh, in the things we design and the things we use, you know, whether we're producers or consumers. Um, but I wanted it to be the kind of thing that you could sort of carry with you, flip through, find some occasional, you know, stories some tools some techniques, some principles and practices that, um, you know, kind of a, an easy reference guide. That's also uh, a, a readable guide. And so field guide just felt like the, the right kind of word to describe the type of book that this is. Mm, and, you know, and, and it kind of goes along well with the philosophy of what you're trying to get across in the book is simplicity, uh, clear a clear vision, a clear statement, all those things about helping people get what it's all about. I mean, it's broken up into, let me just check here, seven chapters, and then you've got this amazing list of figures because it's a very, you know, it's got lots of visual references in it. Try, you know, uh, the simplicity slope, then you've got uh, inelegant, proportion zone. I mean, there's some fun stuff happening here before. And before we get into like that part of the book, I really want to ask you why, why did you use so many of these number one, very simple figures throughout the book? Sure. Well, and that's really, uh, that's a great question. It's an important aspect of the book. You know, I think a lot of times we have a, people have a hard time talking about complexity and simplicity with, with our teammates, with our colleagues, with our, our bosses, our supervisors in particular, uh, because there's just so much baggage associated with words like simple and complex. Um, some people overvalue simplicity. Some people, you know, I think this is where a lot of simplicity gurus and simplicity advocates go wrong, where they just, you know, say simplicity is always the answer. Um, other people overvalue complexity. They, they look at complexity as a sign of sophistication. And, and if uh, you say something's very complex, they see that as a sign of goodness, uh, as a desirable attribute. So what I wanted to do was create a visual vocabulary that helps us have these conversations without all the baggage that goes along with words like simple and complicated and complex. So yeah, throughout the book, we go through a series of very simple diagrams, little a little XY axis and some, some lines and slopes, and we'll talk about different quadrants within this thing. Um, not in an algebra, you know, difficult math type type thing. There's no math involved in the book. Um, but yeah, that w by using these these little icons and, and, and images, it gives us a way to sort of analyze, understand, and communicate and, and talk about some really important design issues and around complexity 
uh, without having to get all wrapped around the axle. Well, what do you mean by simple? What do you mean by complicated? Uh, it's just it's it's another way of, of having this conversation. Mm. Uh, yeah, and and you know, for people learn in different ways. Like some people can read and they get it, and it's clear for them. They have their little aha moments. But having these super uh, simple, and there's a lot of them, there's 39 of them, uh, throughout the book, these these little diagrams, they're so stripped down that by looking at it, if you're a visual person, you go like, wow, okay, now I get it. And I love that you have them at the beginning of each chapter. It, it, it's there, I, I just flipped randomly, uh, and once again, I got to the simplicity slope, what must be my favorite page. <laughs> and, and you know, get, get a get vertical axis, you got your horizontal axis, uh, complexity, and uh, goodness, and this arrow going down, and you're like, oh, okay, I wonder what that's about. And then when you're going into the chapter, you kind of have this question that's sitting in your mind, and as you go through that particular chapter, you start to think, oh, okay, I, ah, ah. And then when you look at the, the diagram again, suddenly it's got clarity. Yeah, and I love that, that you keyed in on that. This is very much an iterative process of, of understanding and learning this. I tend to introduce the diagrams before I explain them to kind of say, okay, look at this. Maybe we don't even understand what that diagram means just yet. And then you read the next paragraph or two and, and it becomes a little clearer. And then you go back and, and sort of re-engage with that, with that image. Um, and so for the most part, that tends to be the pattern that I use. And some of the images, I mean, after you do two or three of them, you kind of get the, the flow, you get the sense. And some of them are very intuitively obvious at, at first glance. Uh, but others, you might deliberately so, they, they might come across as a little bit puzzling, like, hey, how does that di dynamic happen? How does this sort of um, experience or how does this pattern pop up? What causes this? Uh, and then that's what I go into. I like to plant the question, then sort of provide the, uh, the answer or some thoughts around the answer, and then loop back around to say, okay, now, did that really answer the question? Well, it also, I think it also illustrates um exactly what happens in reality. Because when you're going into a meeting or when you're approaching somebody to explain something or you have an idea and you're trying to simplify it, um, it's all about your perceptions. All inside, you kind of have this huge picture. You have your whole personal history behind it and you, you kind of get to this, oh, okay, yes, I get it with all this baggage attached to it. When you're introducing that same concept that you're excited about to somebody else, they have no reference. And you've got to understand that a lot of times it sounds like gibberish when you're talking to somebody about your idea. And the simplicity approach and having these diagrams, I think, really shows what it's like for somebody to be uh, inundated with ideas if you have too many ideas. And me, I have way too many ideas. Uh, it, it, it really, I found it really refreshing because I, again and again, it was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is this is a huge teaching moment for me because I have to understand that I have to strip away all this excitement and emotion and stuff like that and get down to the core of the idea. And it, and it really helps clarify in my mind uh, what the, the core essence or, or, or mechanism of that idea is so it makes it much easier for me to explain in a coherent way without wasting a bunch of people's time. Excellent. I'm so happy to hear you say that because that's precisely the type of uh, service that I was aiming to offer with this book, the type of, um, you know, the type of help I was hoping the book would offer to readers to give them a way to uh, better understand how things work in, in design and how complexity can sometimes make things better. Complexity sometimes makes things worse. 
and to understand that in a way that they could then communicate that and share it with the other people on the team, the, the people around them, people they're working with and people they're working for. Well, I think also that um, for you to really get an idea, or you, if it's yours or somebody else's, the process of simplifying, you really have to understand it. I mean, there was that famous um, uh, president who wrote a letter and, and he basically said, um, I was going to write you a short note, but I didn't have time, so I wrote you a long note. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's funny, the, uh, the ideas and concepts in the simplicity cycle – uh, they were. I'm an engineer, an electrical engineer is my undergraduate degree, and my, my most recent master's is in systems engineering, um, which is all about engineering large, complex systems. Um, but so I wrote this with engineers in mind and, and software programmers and, and technical types, but I found that it very much describes my own writing process. And I've heard from a lot of writers and authors who uh, have found this to be a useful tool to help guide their creative process. And uh, an artist friend of mine uh, read it and said, you know, gosh, Dan, you just described my art making process. Uh, so that was that was very uh, it was exciting to hear that people were finding ways to apply this that uh, went far beyond anything I had initially envisioned when I was first coming uh, coming up with it. Well, you know, once again, you've hit on a very, very salient point that by simplifying it, it enables people to get the core concept and then add it to their lexicon of experience. Uh, and like as an artist gets it and say, oh, I, I can use this on a sculpture. And then an engineer says, oh, I can use this to actually get this uh, piece of machinery to function more efficiently. And and then your wife at home saying, wow, if, if, if I use this technique, maybe my cooking could be a little bit more uh, less messy or something like that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, and that's been a very fun uh, thing to hear from people who have, you know, read the book and said, hey, it, it applied here, it applied there. Um, and I think that's very Typical of any simple tool. Um, somebody said when you optimize a tool for the least capable user, you actually increase its utility for even the most capable user. And simple tools tend to be applied and used in ways far beyond what the uh, you know the inventor or the creator of that tool ever ever intended. Uh, my favorite example of that is a screwdriver. Um, when I take my the thing I do most with my flathead screwdriver is not drive screws. I use it to pry open paint cans more often than I use it to drive screws. <laughs> uh, but of course, when I got my Phillips head screwdriver, which was a little bit of a more complicated tool, uh, suddenly I lost the ability to pry open paint cans with that Phillips head screwdriver because of the, you know, you can't, doesn't have a flat edge to wedge under the, uh, uh, under the lid of the paint can. So that's one of the ways where there are trade-offs when we make changes to our, our tools. You make it a little bit more complicated. It's better at driving screws, but you maybe lose that secondary function and oftentimes the secondary function is the one that we do the most. Well, you know, that's two things come up when you say that. One is uh, the screwdriver is probably one of the oldest shaped tools that we have. Uh, you know, going way back to the caveman, he may not have used that particular shape for screwing anything in stuff, but definitely uh, using that shape uh, to work on an animal or remove something or, or get in something and lever something up. So I think by having that type of tool that's so simple and has such a long, long history with us, there's an infinite ways we can use it. I mean, like if you give a screwdriver to a kid, 
he said, oh, great, it's a drumstick. It's not even, to him, it's not a tool. It's a, it's a stick with a nice handle. It's got a good heft to it. Uh, and then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, I can put this in electrical sockets because it's got the same shape. So it's pattern recognition. So, you know, that's why you never give a child a screwdriver. So um, <laughs> I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask, it, when you were, when, you know, writing the book and, and simplifying simplicity, um, did you have a, a crystallization aha moment that really blew your mind? Uh, oh boy, um, probably several. The, the roots of the book actually go back to 2002. I was a, a young Air Force uh, captain uh, working in the intelligence community, and I was uh, meeting up with a Navy lieutenant commander, and I went to um, demonstrate my new, my latest technology project for her. And she said two sentences that directly led me to uh, eventually write this book, you know, some 13 years later. She said, wait, I don't care how good the thing is that you're about to demonstrate. If it's not easy to use, I don't want it. And that sort of made my brain explode. And, and it very much resonated with me that ease of use mattered a lot. Uh, and in fact, ease of use mattered more than, you know, goodness. And I think when she used that word, she meant having lots of fancy features and the latest and greatest technologies and all the different gadgets and, and gadgets and gizmos, you know, all incorporated and integrated into the system. So she didn't want some big shiny piece of wonder tech. She wanted something that was simple to use and got the job done. Uh, good news is that's exactly what I brought to her and she did like it and her unit went on to, to use uh, that particular system very effectively. Um, but when she said those two sentences, I don't care how good it is, if it's not easy to use, I don't want it. It led me on a course of investigation into how complexity affects the things we make, how complexity affects the things we use. Um, and when, when is complexity good? When is complexity bad? How, does the, how do these things affect ease of use? And at first it was just very informal and casual, and then I got more and more into it. And um, at first, you know, doing some research, doing some experimentation on my own projects, on my own career. And then I was at the Air Force Institute of Technology getting a master's degree and did some formal research, formal academic research into this topic. And uh, eventually it became this, uh, this book. Um, one of the funny things about the book is when I submitted the manuscript to my publisher, uh, they said, um, Dan, this is a great book. We like it a lot, but you're going to have to write a lot more words. And she sort of paused and said, I realize the irony of what I'm asking you to do, uh, but I think there's more you can say about this. And so that was part of, uh, uh, part of the, the writing process as well was, realizing, hey, there were facets of this problem, facets of this question that I didn't address initially, uh, that I, I could address and should address. And by including these new facets, these new pieces of the puzzle, uh, it actually made the book uh, better. So all that sort of leads to the, the most important line in the whole book, which I think I should repeat this line four times. Uh, the most important line is, simplicity is not the point. Um, the book's titled The Simplicity Cycle, but this isn't just about simplify everything. Uh, it's about understanding how complexity affects uh, design, how complexity affects quality and effectiveness, and understanding when to make things more complicated and when to make things less. Um, and so that was, I guess, the, the big uh, the big aha moment, the big sort of discovery was that complexity um, can be good, can be bad. Um, simplicity also can be good, can be bad. But ultimately, simplicity isn't the point. The point is making things that are good, things that meet a need, things that, that work. Well, you know, it makes devastating sense for for some people. They don't get it, but uh, you know, when 
in this consumerist society that we are uh, stuck in, the, the, the problem with is they're trying to constantly bring out new products, and the only thing that they can do <laughs> is add more junk to it and more gadgets and gadgets. Uh, and after a while, there's so much gadgetry on it, you actually can't get to the core functionality of that particular tool. Uh, oh, case in point is the Swiss Army knife. Fantastic idea. Uh, works great. You never use it because by the time you think of using it, you don't know where you put it because you haven't used it a long time. You end up just going to your toolkit and bringing out a screwdriver. So for me, I think definitely when I buy tools these days, now that I've kind of figured out what I want to do and how I want to do it, there's usually a specific tool that just does that one thing and it tends to do very, very well. And if you go to a, a carpenter shop or, or any craftsperson shop, they've got a room full of tools and they, when they need to do a specific thing, they have a tool that just does it. So that's a, a different type of simplicity. It's knowing what you want and how to do it. And that comes from uh, years and years of practice. So I wanted to ask you, uh, in the simplicity cycle, because that's a big part of the book and for me a big aha moment when I read about it, when do you know that you're oversimplifying? When it becomes too stripped down and then you're adding too much effort onto it? Sure, that's a great question. And in fact, that's sort of the question uh, about this this whole thing. And I say it's the question because the book sort of revolves around several different approaches to helping people answer that question in, in different contexts. Um, I think the first step towards getting a good answer is asking it. And a lot of times we don't ask it. That's why I said earlier that a lot of the, the place where a lot of um, simplicity gurus tend to go wrong is when they overvalue simplicity. Uh, they think simplicity is always good. And if we just simplify all the things, then all the things will be great. Um, so when we ask the question, should we simplify, uh, we can find an answer to it oftentimes easier than we think. When we don't ask that question, when we're not aware that, hey, there is a cost to simplicity, that it's possible to oversimplify and produce something that is simplistic, that is something that is simple but not very good. And when we're aware that that's a possibility, we can be mindful of it, we can keep an eye out for it and we can take steps to avoid that possibility. Uh, I was talking with a client recently and, and he actually said to me, uh, Dan, we're not interested in simplicity in, in my company. I fear simplicity. And I thought, wow, what a, what a remarkable uh, statement that he fears simplicity. Uh, but I get it because it's possible for simplicity to be underwhelming, to be inadequate, to be just sterile. And there's, some great value and there can be richness and depth and engagingness in a good complex um thing you know there's complexity in a good cup of coffee there's complexity in a good glass of wine there's a complexity in chocolate and so uh i, I certainly understood where his, his point when he said i fear simplicity um, but at the same time i think we don't have to fear simplicity we can just make good decisions about it and part of what i try to do in the book is help address uh, that fear well, you know, it's interesting because as we're talking, I'm starting to realize there's two different headspace here. There's the person that knows and understands a system and then can approach it and simplify the process. And then there's the other group of people that really don't understand what they're getting their involved in and don't really understand the complexity. And because of that, they will 
make it even more complex because they don't understand the core working functionality of that particular system or tool. So how does a person that is uh, unfamiliar with a process or unfamiliar with a system or, or, or piece of machinery look at it in a holistic way and get the core um, value or functionality of that tool and then by knowing that, be able to approach it with uh, the philosophy written in this book. Um, boy, that's uh, there's a lot of pieces to that question. Yeah. I like it. Um, <laughs> Overly <laughs> complex, I know. <laughs> it, no, it, it's a it's a good it's an example of a good complex question that uh, I, I find just very interesting. Um, so, how do you do this? I think it begins with um, developing an awareness of the different ways complexity can contribute to. Uh, or detract from the quality of, for example, a tool. Um, and so at the end of the book, I go through uh, a dozen or so different archetypes, I call them, of different patterns of behavior that, that take you in different in various directions that lead to either something that is uh, you know, highly effective, very simple, elegant, streamlined, and, and good, or you know, different ways that our, our design efforts can go wrong. And so when we're aware of some of these archetypes, then we can use them as uh, sort of as a measuring stick. So when we look at a new thing and say, okay, hmm, is that this particular pattern or is it that other pattern? Does it fit one of these archetypes? And if so, is it a positive archetype or a, or a negative archetype? So uh, the, the Swiss Army knife, for example, is, is just always fascinating to me. I've, I've owned many Swiss Army knives and gotten a great amount of use out of them. Uh, but when you look at a Swiss Army knife, it has a, a blade that's not a very good blade. And it has a corkscrew that's not a great corkscrew, and it has uh, you know a little saw on it, and, and it's not a great saw. Uh, but what it does have is that all of these things in one easy, uh, one easy package. And so I only need to pack one thing. I only need to carry one thing with me. And oftentimes I don't need a good saw. I just need an adequate saw. I don't need a good blade. I need an adequate blade. And when these are good enough. The, the simplicity in that case, the, the simplicity of having a single device that has a number of good enough features uh, is exactly what I need. In other cases, I do need a good saw. And in that case, the simplicity of having a single you know, multi-use tool, um, that ends up not being a desirable attribute. I need a, a, if I'm sawing a larger piece of wood or if I need a, a better knife to carve uh, more intricately or carve larger or do different things with the knife, um, then I might want a dedicated um, dedicated tool that just does the one thing. I want just a blade. I want just a knife. And in that case, that's a different type of simplicity. Um, so I think we can express simplicity in, in different ways because now I'm going to need to carry an axe and a knife and a saw. You know, so it's three different things, which in a sense is more complex as a portfolio but each individual tool is simpler and I think in most, for the most cases, uh, performs the, the job better. Uh, but I, again, sometimes we don't need the best saw in the world. We need a, a good enough saw. Uh, it doesn't have to be a great saw. And, and that's what the Swiss Army knife will give you is, is a, a good enough saw. You know, it reminds me of the weekend. Uh, we were chatting before the show started, and, and I said I went hiking. And <clears throat> when I go camping, I bring a truckload of stuff because I like to build my campsite. And I have all sorts of, like you say, uh, specific tools to do specific things. But then the next day when I wake up and I'm getting ready to go hiking up a mountain that has like 
2,500 meters of elevation, I don't want to be carrying a bunch of tools. So then something like a multi-tool becomes uh, a very valuable uh, device to carry on because it's relatively small, it's relatively light, and it does many, many, many things. And I may never use it, but on that one hike that I need it, it has to be there because that's the time that if I don't have it, I'm going to be in big trouble. And I think it's part of this book is understanding perspective of the situation you're in. And you you can't make arguments about, oh, this isn't this doesn't work because of these reasons, and uh, this simplicity doesn't make any sense because of those reasons. It's more about a philosophy. It's almost like a Zen like philosophy and and you it does get mentioned in the book, um, uh, the Zen of learning and and, understanding and Zen and simplicity are, are really, really work well together um, because it's mindfulness and being in the moment. And if you're mindful and you're in the moment, then simplicity becomes an incredibly powerful tool because you can strip away a lot of the unneeded reality in that particular situation or that particular tool or that particular system or let's say uh, an individual who's overly complex and uh, trying to simplify what motivates them and, and what uh, how to deal with them effectively. So that being said, I wanted to ask you something completely non-relevant to that uh, blathering statement. For you, um, as you were going through the book, did you did you have a a section or or um, a simplicity function that really spoke to you more than the others, or is that totally unfair? Hmm. Um, you know, it's to break it all down. Well, I mean, to to, to do it, say it in another way is like out of all the the uh, diagrams and and all the different chapters, which one harmonized the most for you? Because out of a simplicity book, there has to be one that kind of say, "Wow, this is." If I was on a desert island, which, which, what would be the one I would like? Which one would it be? Um. Hmm. You know, it, it is a tough question. As I'm kind of flipping through my copy of it in front of me. You know, I think I might have to go with the chapter that's titled On Hard Work and Design. It's chapter five. And that's where I kind of go into the, well, let me, let me jump back a little bit. Several people have asked me when, you know, when they hear that I've written a book and people always ask questions about writing. Uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, was it hard? And I never know how to answer that question. Was, was, it, was it hard work? Um, certainly it was effort. Uh, I had a day job. I was still on active duty in the, in the Air Force when I wrote uh, the book. So I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and, and that's when I could find a, a quiet hour to, to do the writing. Um, but it was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I felt like I, I learned a lot. I grew a lot through the process of, of writing this book and my, and my previous one. Um, it, the, writing the book made me laugh and, and uh, I would be hard pressed to call it hard or, or difficult, uh, but there was certainly plenty of, of effort and strain and, and you know, heavy lifting in, involved with, uh, with putting this together. So in this chapter, uh, I go through the, taking a look at the question of why do we equate value to something in direct proportion to the amount of labor that went into making? Um, and uh, I think a thing's value should be measured in terms other than how hard it was to do. And so I think part of the reason I have a difficult time answering the question, was it hard to write the book, is that I, I don't even think in terms of those of, of that question. 
And I'm not sure it's a, it's a very relevant question. Uh, I think the, the better question is, you know, is the book um, any good? Oh, I can't, I can't answer that either. The, the reader has to answer <laughs> that. Um, but, you know, did you have fun doing it? Was it interesting? What did you learn? Those, I think these are interesting questions to ask. Um, and yes, of course, there are some times when work feels like work, and, and that's okay. Uh, sweating and straining uh, aren't always to be avoided. Uh, but in this chapter, I kind of go through the question of when something is hard, when you're really straining and, and pulling and you're not finding much progress, that might be a sign that you're doing it wrong. Uh, that might be a sign that, that there's um, some, a different approach we should consider. Uh, and so the solution in those cases where you're, you know, you're straining and stretching and, and pushing and pulling and, and working really hard and not getting much progress for it, maybe the answer is not to just work harder. Uh, maybe there are, are other approaches, other angles that we could take. And, and so, uh, yeah, I really liked the way that uh, that chapter in particular came together. It also brings up um, your diagrams uh, because, you know, you've got your vertical axis and you've got your horizontal axis. You've got the complexity, which is your vertical, and then you've got the goodness, which is your... Is that the y-axis? I can never remember the two. Uh, goodness would be the x-axis, the horizontal. Yeah. Okay, axis. you know, and and it's unfortunate that that people that are listening to the show don't have the luxury of looking at these diagrams. So go out and get the book. Um, <laughs> but it it really, and we've talked about this earlier in the interview. But really, it is such a key point when you look at these diagrams. They are so brilliantly simple, and you can just look at them and get it. But then when you add the complexity and goodness thoughts to it, they become uh, something that you kind of debate in your head and you go back and forth and they become relatively a complex question. Yeah, I think what, what I tried to capture was what they call the, the simplicity on the other side of complexity, where it's a very simple um, diagram, but it hides a lot of complexity underneath it and there's a lot of richness and, and you can really sort of think about these and meditate these, meditate on them and and find new applications to them and new meanings in them uh, beyond what's just immediately obvious when you take a first glance. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely rabbit holes, every single one of them, because I'm just flipping through and it's like, oh, gosh. The, uh, actually, one of the things that happens when you're reading this book is you get flashbacks about situations where you think, oh, my gosh, I should have known this or I should have looked at this situation slightly different and it would have been a lot easier. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, if something seems overly difficult and you're not having fun trying to figure it out, uh, you should maybe be stepping back from it and looking at it in, in a slightly more uh, simple way. But I wanted to ask you, at what time is it more appropriate, instead of you figuring out, going to somebody that already knows what it is and have them explain it to you in a simple way? Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, design, I say, is design is iterative. But design is also social. We, we hardly ever um, create or design or make something entirely on our own. And certainly, I mean, take a book that has one author's name on it. Uh, boy, make sure you go back and look at the acknowledgments page because there were a lot. Of, there's always a lot of people who contribute to making something even as, as simple as a book. Uh, so because design is an, is an iterative uh, social activity, uh, we constantly have to be in conversation with, with the people around us. And some, you know, it's good to have the, the more experienced mentor, people who have been there before and can kind of you know, guide you based on their experience. It's also good to have uh, connections and conversations with people who are less experienced, the novices, people who come in with fresh perspectives and you know, don't know what they don't know. And so they can maybe 
ask questions and, and propose ideas that a more experienced person might have overlooked. And actually, we go into that a little bit in the, the section where I talk about Zen mind and, and beginner's mind. Zen mind, beginner's mind, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier again, is the the Zen mind is somebody that grasps the whole system as uh, the whole and understands all the parts to that whole and why each functionality or each part of that whole makes sense because it's the most efficient way to use things and if not then they would be fixing it the person that's beginning doesn't see the whole you can't see the forest for the trees syndrome and they're tending to try and figure it out by adding complexity and i think that that for me is if you know if i'm working with a a junior person i'm trying to manage them it's when their questions become simpler and simpler and simpler i get a much better idea that uh, they're understanding the system much better and they're actually moving forward whereas if somebody keeps on asking more and more complex questions i know that they're lost and it's time to step back and 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 guide them yeah absolutely and and i think those the different phases that we go through in our in our projects and in our conversations and our our maturity and our understanding of of the, the work we're doing or, or the world in general, um, those different phases will require us to use different tools. And a big part of what I do in the book is talk about what the phases are, give some ideas for how do we notice which phase we're in. You know, are, are things getting more complicated or are we getting simpler? Um, and then introduce some different tools we can use in these different phases to help move the move the ball forward, to help move uh, the design in a in a positive direction. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the tone of the book. The, the book is, um, I don't want to say hilarious, but it's very lighthearted. It's a lot of fun. It, it's, it, it plays with the language a lot. Uh, when you're reading it, you definitely have a smile or a smirk on your face every now and again. And uh, as I was you know, experiencing that emotional uh, humor in, in the book, I started to realize that the people that are happiest in life that you run into are usually masters. You know, you think of a great person in your life, a great photographer, and you say, oh, gosh, they must be so stern and serious and, 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 and you know, so focused that they're, oh. And then you meet them, and they're just like this, hey, how's it going? They're so relaxed. They're so grounded. They're so uh, happy and, and focused with their medium that everything seems nice and friendly. And that, I think, is a huge learning um bridge for for a lot of people that are trying to get over uh the over complexity of a particular thing photography being a classic example it's a trillion dollar industry is because people are spending way too much money buying every lens and 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 not really understanding it's not the lens it's not the camera it's actually having the camera on you at all times and having a lens and 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 it the camera set up in a simple way that you understand that when something happens, you can react accordingly. So for you, what do you say to the people that are listening to the show, the, the business people and the, the CEOs and the owners of, of companies that are in there, the people that are working in very complex organizations, how do they seek out simplicity? How do they find the gurus in an organization that they can go to and get the right answers? Well, I, I think you uh, hit it right on the head at the beginning of, of that, uh, uh, the beginning of those comments. You know, look for the people who are, are smiling. Look for the people who are, uh, who have that sort of Zen mind, who are, who are at peace. The people who are angry, the people who are stressed out, 
those are the ones who tend to move, be moving in the direction of making things more complicated than they need to be. And I think there is a, a correlation between having that uh, sense of serenity and having an appreciation for, and not just an appreciation for, but a skill for simplicity. And it is a, uh, a mutually reinforcing cycle. It's a virtuous cycle where uh, mental serenity helps move us in the direction of simplicity. And when we pursue simplicity, that helps foster serenity, uh, whereas sort of insanity and complexity tend to go together. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think, you know, look for the people who are, who are smiling, who are laughing and, and who are having a good time and not taking things too seriously. I think those tend to be, like you said, uh, the masters, uh, the people who really understand what's going on. And in fact, I, I didn't mention this. Actually, I don't think I've told any other interviewers this, but one of the biggest influences on my book, um, is Nick Offerman. He's the actor who plays Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. Very funny guy. Hilarious. Uh, and his book, Paddle Your Own Canoe, is just brilliant, insightful, funny, gentle, sweet, masterful. And he, he spends a lot of time talking about mastery and craft. Uh, but one of the things he also does is he mentions a lot of books that have influenced him, books that he finds interesting. So two or three of the books that I reference in my book are books that I heard about through Nick Offerman's book, Paddle Your Own Canoe. And I feel a little bit bad that I, I didn't actually mention Offerman's book in, in mine. I only mentioned the book that, that he pointed me to. So uh, hopefully at least mentioning it in this, uh, this interview, I've begun to um, uh, mitigate that, uh, that oversight. It goes back again and again, and it, it seems to be a theme in this chat that it's the people that have spent the time and energy to get what they're doing, being once again, almost having a Zen-like approach to it, having pure clarity understanding the system uh, to the nth degree and even at that point still looking at it and how can we simplify how can I understand this uh, relatively simple device uh, in a slightly different way so I can get more out of it and I think in today's world of rush 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 and do more do more do more and multitask multitask that's all been stripped away and we're really going backwards and we don't even realize it and that, that's I think a big tragedy of the modern world is we're not spending the time to uh, unplug and uh, turn off our phones on the weekends and spend more time with the people that we love or doing the things that we love to do, whether it's carving or working with a, a little league team, whatever it is, outside of your everyday uh, job description so that your brain has a chance to try something and have the opportunity to be outside of that cycle of relatively complex things or whatever. And then when you go back to it, be able to look at it afresh and see the pattern. And once you see the pattern, you can simplify the pattern because patterns is just repeating things. Repeat, repeat, repeat. If you can mm. see the pattern, then you can see the simplicity. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. How should somebody approach this book? I mean, it's obviously not a book that you read cover to cover. You can. You can zip through it relatively quickly. It's it's a fun, easy read. Um, what would you recommend? Um, so I would recommend, you know, start on page one and, and you know, give it a, a read through once, but then keep it around. You know, go back and, and flip through uh, the different uh, parts that sort of stood out or either the parts that were particularly clear or the parts that were particularly confusing and return to those. Having said that, I've, I've heard from more than a few people that 
they uh, they actually start with the last chapter um, where I go through. It's called Travelogues and Archetypes, and that's where I include a, a little collection of, like I said, about a dozen of these different archetypical patterns. And a lot of people sort of gravitate to that. And, and it's a pretty good introduction to the, the concept uh, beginning there on, on chapter seven. So either begin at the beginning or begin at the end. Uh, and then don't read, don't read it just once, I guess, would be my, my other recommendation for approaching this. And like you said, it's, it's a fairly short, uh, easy read. Several people have told me they, they did it uh, practically in one sitting. Um, although that's that's impressive to me. I'm not sure I could get through a, a book like this in one sitting. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you can certainly start with Chapter 7, um, the, the final chapter, and kind of go go there first. Um, but I think it is the kind of book that you want to keep in your top shelf and, and pull out and flip through periodically just to kind of um, see what uh, see what pops up and see what, what catches your attention the next time around. Yeah, it's it's definitely, like you say, it's it, – it should be a kind of like a handbook, uh, something that you're reaching for more than once. Um, if you are presenting to any group of people, if you're building PowerPoints, if you're trying to explain stuff, I would highly recommend uh, going through the book and saying, oh, this is a perfect figure and starting your PowerPoint with a figure that helps explain what you're trying to get across in the PowerPoint, just to break it up and get people in the right mindset. I think for sure when people read this book, you kind of get into almost like a Zen state and you start, you know, you put the book down and suddenly your desk looks way too complex or overly neat. And you're realizing, oh, that chapter I just read about overcompensation. Okay. Now I'm seeing what he means. So it, it's so clean the messaging that when literally when you put the book down you are seeing the world in a slightly different light excellent well thank you that's one of the nicest things people can say about my book that's uh, <laughs> pretty much what i was aiming for <laughs> when you were you know in the army doing doing your thing um is that where the 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 seed to this book came from or was it from your previous book uh, fire was it is that kind of like the next stage along or um yeah uh, very much a connection uh, my, my time in the military in the air force actually um was directly where a lot of this work um came from because as a as an engineer a military technologist and, and a program manager i dealt with a lot of complex technologies as well as complex organizations complex processes and really kind of had to learn how to manage complexity in the way we communicated in our, in our PowerPoint presentations and the way we operated with our, our IT systems, uh, our, our processes, our, our organizations. And that really got me thinking, hey, is there a better way to do this? And yes, this is related to my, my first book, which was titled Fire. Uh, the subtitle for that was How Fast, Inexpensive, Restrained, and Elegant Methods Ignite Innovation. Uh, the basic premise for that book was that innovation doesn't have to cost so much, take so long, and be so complicated. And that we get our best results, our, our most important, most impactful, most innovative results when we have a small team with a short schedule, a tight budget, and a deep commitment to simplicity. And so the second book, The Simplicity Cycle, takes it a deeper dive look at that simplicity piece of, of the puzzle. Um, so when we focus on speed, thrift, and simplicity, that tends to correlate tightly with uh, best-in-class, first-in-class, world-class uh, new innovations and technologies. Um, and so, so this is the simplicity piece of that speed, thrift, and simplicity formula. 
for all our listeners, what is one thing that they can do today to uh, look at the world in a more simplistic way? Yeah, interesting question. So I think one of the things we can do is spend some time thinking about those two sentences that, uh, that, that maybe Lieutenant Commander said to me uh, back in 2002. I don't care how good it is. If it's not easy to use, I don't want it. And think about what, what good means. What does it mean for something to be good, uh, effective, useful, um, reliable, maintainable, all the different, uh, all the different illities we talk, we talk about, maintainability, reliability, that type of stuff. Um, so what does goodness mean in, in your context and in the problems that you get to solve and the decisions you get to make? Uh, and then what does ease of use mean? Is it, easy for somebody to use, meaning they can uh, do it with very little training, uh, or is it easy to use? That is, uh, once you've been trained on it, now you can do, you can have a big impact by using this tool. Um, so thinking about those two pieces of the puzzle, ease of use and, and uh, goodness, uh, use those sort of as filters to look at your, your current project, your current effort, your current PowerPoint presentation. So where should people go to learn more, you know, if they read the book and they want to continue, uh, you know, listening to what you have to say um, or just want to uh, figure out a little bit more about simplicity? Do you have a blog or something like that? Sure. Um, I probably Twitter is the best way to keep up on my latest uh, writings and publications and, and, you know, various bits and pieces and brain pickings. So I'm on Twitter at thedanward. Uh, yeah, just thedanward, so T-H-E, Dan Ward, W-A-R-D. Uh, you can also go to my website, thevdanward.com. You can download uh, the first chapter of the book for free, so you can get the PDF there. You can also go over to changethis.com, which is a great, brilliant website. I, I love what they do. Uh, and you can download the uh, the Simplicity Cycle Manifesto over at changethis.com. And that's kind of the snack size um, appetizer version of, of the Simplicity Cycle. All new content, but very much uh, directly related to uh, to the book. And so that's uh, it's an easy one to kind of download. It's about a 15-pager, but not dense in, in terms of text. And so an easy one to, to download and share with, with people as a way to kind of begin that uh, that conversation. But uh, yeah, between my website, thedanward.com, or following me on Twitter, uh, that's at thedanward. That's probably the, the best way to keep up with all this stuff. You know, and ironically, it makes most, sen- most sense because, let's face it, Twitter, the super simplification of communication, I guess SMS texting would probably be equivalent as well. Yes, Twitter's great, and I think the the constraints of Twitter uh, are are their great are its great strength. And one of the themes in my first book, the Fire Book, was that constraints foster creativity. When we don't have a lot of time, don't have a lot of money, we don't have a lot of characters to play with. It really forces us to come up with creative and, and innovative solutions. And I think Twitter does that better than than almost anything else I can think of. We've been chatting about the book, The Simplicity Cycle with Dan Ward. Amazing book, The Field War, A Field Guide to Making Things Better Without Making Them Worse. Uh, after reading the book, it puts a smile on my face just reading that. Uh, definitely check it out. A wonderful book, a lot of fun to read, and a vast amount of knowledge packed into such a small form factor. Dan, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Bob, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. 
visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.